morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story or memoir are really hard to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scenes, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from the wonderful and amazingly prolific Meg Waite Clayton, who is going to share the first pages of her latest novel, The Postmistress of Paris. Good morning, Meg. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Meg Waite Clayton is the author of eight novels, most recently the international bestseller, The Postmistress of Paris, and this is the book we're going to be hearing from. The Postmistress of Paris is a Good Morning America buzz book, New York Times uh, book Review Editor's Choice, Publishers Weekly Notable Book, Indie Next Booksellers Pick, and an Amazon Editor's Pick recommended by People Magazine and USA Today. Not too shabby, Meg. <laughs> um, she also has a Jewish Book Award finalist uh, for The Last Train to London, and that's also a national and international bestseller. It's been published or forthcoming in 20 languages. And we talked earlier that I could keep going on and on about all these amazing awards that all of her novels have won, um, but we decided we shouldn't do that. But you can find more information about her other books in the podcast notes if you're interested in that. On a side note, she also mentors for the Op-Ed Project and is a member of the National Book Critics Circle and the California Bar. So Meg, you are a busy woman, <laughs> uh, and I'm just so grateful to that you're taking time to read to us and talk about your first pages. I know people are going to love this. Okay, Meg, if you can give just an overview um, of the book so that we understand what we're getting into when we look at these first pages. No, absolutely. Uh, this one's The Postmistress of Paris, and uh, it's uh, based on a true story. Uh, if any of you are watching Transatlantic on um, on Netflix uh, now, it's that true story of Varian Fry and uh, Mary Jane Gold. Uh, the book is truer than than, than, the, than the show. Uh, and it is, uh, it uh, revisits the early days of the German occupation of France. Uh, it's a love story and a tale of high stakes danger about a young American heiress, uh, codenamed the postmistress who helps uh, artists and writers and intellectuals uh, hunted by the Nazis escape uh, from war-torn Europe. So that's basically what it's about. Wonderful. And uh, shall I launch into reading? Yes, let's hear okay. the pages. So I'm going to just read the very opening. There's a, you know, there's a little uh, um, quote before it, but this starts in um, oh, something just popped up in my Zoom. No, this starts uh, Monday, January 17th, 1938 in the sky over Paris. The sky out the glass roof of her Vega gull was as crimson as the airplane. Beyond the windshield and the gray whirl of propeller, 10,000 tons of iron stood laced against the setting sun. Nanay called over the roar of the Gypsy Six engine. La dame de feu a son milieu nouveau. That's the kind of art I love. To Dagobert, her sole passenger, who wagged his unkempt poodle tail as they circled the Eiffel Tower, the Iron Lady at her best. She flew on up the looping Seine, headed back to Paris for the Exposition Internationale de Surrealism, 300 artworks depicting gigantic insects, bizarre floating heads, and dismembered or defiled bodies she knew were meant to be thought-provoking, but always left her feeling unsophisticated and far too American, Midwestern, not even from Chicago, but from Evanston. She loosened the white silk scarf at her neck as she initiated a controlled descent from a thousand feet to 800, 600, five, to buzz her empty apartment on Avenue Foch. 
She loved Paris, if only its winter nights weren't so long when you were 28 and living alone. She throttled back to idle and extended the flaps over the Bois de Bologna, descending to 200 feet as she approached the park's lake, its small cascade and charming little emperor's kiosk. Up here in the air, there was no grumbling about Prime Minister Chautamps excluding socialists from the French government, no brother killing brother in Barcelona, no Hitler claiming to be eager for peace while all of Europe trembled. She dipped a wing for a better view uh, uh, for a better view to see the trickle of water over rocks into a frozen lake and, oh Lord, a span of black wings stretched to white feathered tips at 10 o'clock. A red bill opened in a call of warning inaudible over the engine as she slammed the throttle wide open and yanked back the yoke, snapping to the right and climbing to avoid crashing into the black swan already diving to avoid her. But the nose of the plane was rising too quickly vertical speed 1,500 feet per minute. Through the windshield, nothing but sky. The wings buffeted as the plane began to lose lift, the stall horn sounding its alarming blare. She pushed the yoke forward, rolling out of the turn, sending the nose dipping in an effort to recover from the stall. Dagobert tumbled forward as the altimeter unwound and the plane shot down, the view now pure propeller and frozen lake. The ice, so little room to maneuver, Poor Dagobert whimpering, the airspeed indicator at 45 knots, fingers aching from her grip on the yoke. It's okay, Dag, she said, her whole body tensed, about to splinter, 50 knots, 55. She willed the airspeed indicator to move faster so she could pull up again without stalling before she crashed into the ice. Faster, damn it, 60, 65, pulling back on the yoke again, the, the pitch of the nose rising now, the attitude indicator moving toward level, so low she was nearly skimming the frozen lake. Her knuckles pale with her tight grip, but yes, she'd stopped the stall. She was flying straight and level. The airspeed indicator now at 70 knots. She retracted a notch of flaps, the plane sinking a little and her stomach with it. She pulled back a bit more on the yoke, maintaining altitude. Dagobert looked up anxiously from the floorboard. Another notch of flaps, a little more on the yoke, initiating the climb out. We'll just leave it there. Wonderful. Oh, my God. The presence of the dog alone <laughs> uh, wraps us up in this in this scene. I, I, I have to admit, I'm worried more for the dog than I'm worried for the main <laughs> character. But that's just something about me. But she the presence of the dog just uh, grants her just a, another side of her characterization and um, that choice um did you always have the dog in the scene it was that I, always i always had the dog in the scene uh, so the postmistress of paris is uh, based on a real uh, woman a real uh, chicago heiress uh whose name is mary jane gold who did uh she was living in paris when uh the french invaded and she stayed and uh instead when most expats were decamping back to the u.s she stayed and helped rescue people from france so it's based on a real person and this real person uh or inspired in ways by a real person uh, she actually had a dog and her dog was a poodle named dagobert her, her dog was actually a standard poodle so i made him smaller so that he could travel more easily with her but um uh but so so she had a dog and i love dogs and so uh it was actually the first time i wrote a major dog character but it was so much fun and i think as you say you know we care about adults but we really care about people and dogs you know? yeah. yeah so uh putting him there in the seat with her uh i think kind of 
it, and it gives you as somebody to react to what she's doing as well, which is, I, I think, helpful. So right, so that she's not alone, and and she also even talks to the dog. So, she does, yeah. um, and that even gives us some information when she does that. So I think it, it works quite well. Trying not to have your character alone in scenes is really vital. Um, now, so this this character is based off a real life character, but you changed her name. Is that I right? Did. Yes, that's um, correct. So what? What worked into, I was actually running a workshop last night and a student of mine said, well, I can't really write from the point of view of a real life character. And I said, actually, people do it all the time. I mean, there are some issues behind it. Um, but what, what went into your decision to try to go into the psyche and personality of a real life character, but then also give yourself some wiggle room and license by not using her real name? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because I've used uh, I've done uh, stories based on real characters before. So like uh, Beautiful Exiles was uh, uh, based on the stormy love affair between um, uh, Martha Gellhorn and Ernest Hemingway. And The Last Train to London was uh, really based on the life of Truce Weissmuller, who is this extraordinary Dutch woman who helped rescue children from the Reich. Um, for The Postmistress of Paris, uh, I love the real Mary Jane Gold, um, and I could just have called this character M Mary Jane. Uh, a lot of people would, a lot of writers would. I feel like if you were uh, deviating too much from the facts of the real person's life, uh, you should consider, I, I feel, I consider uh, very seriously whether you uh, want to use their name. Mm -hmm. And um, so for that reason, the, the Nene in this book is actually the book has three parts and the real Nene uh, or the real Mary Jane Gold um, did the things that were in the first two parts, not the things that were in the third part. Those are actually things done by another uh, real person whose name is uh, Lisa Fitko. She's a German refugee who was living in, in France at the time. And so I both hated to um, to dishonor Lisa Fitko by calling her actions done by Mary Jane Gold, um, but also, and perhaps more importantly, the love affair in this uh, is I wanted to keep the story, uh, you think of it in the cauldron. So you you want your love affair to be something that moves the main part of the story forward or informs the main part of the story. The real Mary Jane Gold, her love affair was with a Marseille mobster. And <laughs> it's a really interesting story, but it does nothing to move forward the story of uh, this effort to rescue people from, from Southern France uh, when it was uh, during the German occupation and when it was a split country. And so uh, I wanted to give her, uh, I wanted to give her a love interest that was within this world that they were living in. And so I gave her a love interest in an artist, uh, which she didn't have in, in real life. You'll be amused to know that in Transatlantic, they also give her a different love affair, somebody in the cauldron, but they don't, they're fine with calling her Mary Jane Gold. And so that's the two, you know, sides of, of, of how you do it. But that's how I do it. If, if, it, if you're reading a real character's name in my novel, most of what you're reading is, is everything you're reading is what they have done or what they might have done, basically. Right, right, excellent. Um, okay, so you said you had quite a story behind how you discovered these first pages. Yeah, well, so it's interesting. It's not so much how I discovered them as, uh, as how I wrote them. So the real marriage angle really did uh, uh, um, fly a Vega gull. And so I did, when I sat down to write this uh, book, and she really did have a dog named Dago Bear. So as I sat down to write this book, for whatever reason, it, uh, I, when I sit down to write, I, I don't give myself any, any, 
there, there's no editor sitting on my shoulder. There's no expectation. It, those first pages are often not the first pages of the book. Uh, so I just sit down and write whatever comes. I think that's the best way to write, write whatever comes. So I sat down to write this and what came was this, this scene over Paris in this airplane. Well, uh, I've been to Paris many times. I have come into Charles de Gaulle on a big airplane. I have never been in a small airplane over Paris. I've been in small airplanes. I've never piloted one. Uh, and I certainly had never been in a Vega Gull with a, with a puppy sitting and a dog sitting next to me. Um, so, uh, I had been to Paris a couple of times already to research this and all the, you know, basically almost all the places that, uh, I needed to go to research this one. Uh, and I was supposed to go back to Paris, uh, that fall that I was starting to write it. And I, um, I had in mind that I might see if I could get somebody to take me on a little plane around Paris, even though that would be pretty expensive. Um, and there, there was one other thing I had to do uh, in Europe that I didn't get to do. Um, and so, but I couldn't because COVID started and we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't go outside our own little offices. Uh, so what I did was I put up a post on Facebook. I said, uh, I've got this, uh, does anybody know basically about the Vega Gulls? Uh, and I got uh, two responses. Uh, one from a, a, a reader whose father had, um, had uh, flown the last Vega Gull still flying in America. Uh, and she sent me uh, pictures and footage of what it looked like in, in the window and uh, told me all about it, including giving me the specs of the plane. Oh. And the other person was a fellow named Christopher Keck. Uh, Christopher is a pilot. He offered to take me up. I'm in Carmel by the sea. He offered to take me up on a, on a plane uh, over Carmel, but my parents were both ill and I didn't want to expose myself to anybody, so I declined. Um, but what he did was he set up the whole path. He took the specs um, that uh, we had on the plane and he set up the whole path uh, over Paris that I was going to do, which was a different path, on a flight simulator for me. And oh we spent my gosh. by Zoom about five hours, uh, him flying me around Paris virtually, uh, showing me uh, what she would see or where she would go, how tight things would be, how high she could be, what all that language is. I didn't know what an altimeter was. And uh, uh, there's some word in here where everybody goes, don't you mean altitude? No, that's uh, it was not altitude. It was attitude, I think it is. Um, anyway, uh, and so the end result of that time with him, and, and then I sent him the chapter and he looked at it for me and he said, oh, you know, this and that. But I got things like how low the plane could go, how, um, how uh, you know, all the, the words you would use, you know, pulling up the whatever and that kind of thing. I didn't know any of that. Um, and, uh, and it was just this huge blessing. And all it was was uh, me saying, uh, does anybody know? And it's just uh, one of the lovely, lovely things about uh, being a writer is one, how much you can learn, and two, how generous other people are in sharing their knowledge with you. So that's how that came to be. It was always she was going to be in a flight over Paris, but it you know, just little things like I wanted, I knew I wanted her to almost crash the plane, but I didn't know what would cause that. Uh, and I, so I knew, you know, birds often crash planes. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, there's a swan on that lake and they always come in uh, there. So I'll, I'll make, put a swan in the air. And uh, Chris was able to tell me, okay, so if you put this swan, the swan coming in from here, you could have an excellent pilot who wouldn't see it coming as she's banking to see wouldn't see it coming any other pilot you know if it's any any other place the it's not a good pilot if they're if they're getting caught by that swan but if you put it there then then that's realistic so it was so much fun and it was a, a point of connection during the pandemic that uh was really lovely and uh and it made the scene the scene that had been 
fairly generic and non-specific really come alive just from having those details. I do think, you know, you hear God is in the details. That is so true. Yeah. Whether your whether your scenes feel uh, really real or just feel kind of generic uh, depends on the details for sure. That's incredible. And even though Facebook itself does have some issues, <laughs> that's a good thing about Facebook. Like if you have questions and you're wondering, ask, um, ask the hive mind and you can find people. Um, and the details here. Yeah, I was utterly convinced that you'd actually been in a plane. Uh -huh. I was like, well, how does Meg actually do this? And there's some other wonderful things. So, so just the decision of beginning with her in a plane is just so um, exciting um, it feels exotic. It feels like, you know, you're, it's just it's just a fun escape um, place for readers. And I think it works so well. At the same time, I felt that you also, um, instead of thinking of this woman that we might think, well, she has nothing to do with me. In the second paragraph, um, you talk about that she, she flies over the looping sen and she says... Um, She's looking at the artworks and she says she knew they were meant to be thought provoking, but they always left her feeling unsophisticated and far too American, Midwestern, not even from Chicago, but from Evanston. And for me, I mean, I'm a Midwestern girl as well, but for me, that also just gave us some real vulnerability to her and a really way in um, yeah. to her uh, yeah. that allows us to to um, relate to her as much as possible. And then the last information that you skip, um, sneak in at the end of the paragraph, she loved Paris, if only its winter nights weren't so long when you were 28 and living alone. Um, and that is really quite deftly done um, to give her age and her and her situation. And there's a yearning there, too. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting. I mean, um, uh, this is. Uh... Uh, I can't even remember if it's a first, it's not first person, it's a, but it's a very close third. Yeah. Um, and when you're in that very close, it's, you know, those details, uh, you know, I mean, the, the kind of cliche way to do it is have them look in a mirror so you can see what they look like, you know, I mean, uh, but, uh, but there are, and, and it's hard to get in those details. Uh, you have to be really subtle about it. So she can't say I'm 28 years old. She has to get that in, in the context of, uh, of, you know, something she's thinking about, right? So, um, and uh, I think that's uh, one of the puzzle parts of writing that my brain really enjoys, how you get that stuff in uh, without it feeling clunky or um, too narrative. So right. I really enjoy that part of writing. Yeah. And especially doing it when we're in a moment of action and, and movement, yeah. I think yeah. is particularly hard to do because yeah. I think, we stall the text uh, with exposition. Um, we're like, oh, I need to get this in about the character. Um, but you can really deftly just weave it into the ongoing movement. Um, and, it, and it works very, very well. And you do this again. You know, she throttled back to the idol and extended the flaps. It's full, we're full of action and sensory details in this whole thing. And then you just very well give us kind of an um, an overview of the political climate of the time. And this is a political climate that we are familiar with, but we really get it kind of from her point of view, warped a little bit and through language and in the ways in which she might think about it, which makes it refreshing and new. So, you know, up here, there's no grumbling about prime minister or the prime minister excluding socialists from the French government, no brother killing brother in Barcelona, no Hitler claiming to be eager for peace while all of Europe trembled. Um, and, and but you don't 
do it too much. It's yeah. just a little bit of sliver so it doesn't interrupt. And then you do this one fun trick. She dipped a wing for a better view to see the trickle of water over rocks into frozen lake. And, and then there's um, a break and then, oh, Lord. Um, and so that, folks, for your listening, that's actually called free indirect style. So free indirect style is when we hear, uh, it's actually free direct style, we hear freely and directly from the character in the moment in their own language. So that is 100% Nene speaking to us. That's not the narrator, though it is not in italics, it's not in uh, quotation marks. Um, you don't need that for free direct style. Um, and it really interrupts the narrator um, actually, literally on this page, you're interrupting the narrator to get her in. And then you continue to use that as she begins to cycle out of control. Is that something that comes really natural to you? Is that kind of fun for you to use to be able to go into the character's language and kind of interrupt the narrator in that way? Uh, yeah. So I'll tell you that a lot of times when I write a scene the first time, I'll write it from first person point of view, uh, literally first person, that, that would read I. Uh, and then I go back and convert it to third person. And part of the reason I do that is because if you, there's something about using the I narrator that really uh, immerses me at least in thinking that in that character's brain. Uh, and I think it is so it's so much more engaging to be inside a character's life than to be watching them from outside. And so I think those kinds of things are really important. Um, and uh, so I guess I just do that all the time. And it probably comes from, uh, you know, my first couple of novels were first person point of view. Uh, and I do love the first person point of view. It has drawbacks. And if you're doing a multiple point of view um, book, it's, uh, it can be particularly challenging. But, um, but uh, yeah, I, I really like that really close third and, and literally going into somebody's head. I, I think if you're close enough in to start with, which this is, it's a pretty close narration to start with, um, it works really well. But there's also, I think there's a certain amount of, I mean, if you look uh, the way the 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 shape of the scene it does start with that literally floating over paris and seeing paris and so if you think of it as a movie it would be you know you would you would be coming in you first you would see the view she's seeing and then you'd come in to see her in her little plane and i think that uh is affected too it it's there's so much you have to do in a first chapter and yeah. especially in those first paragraphs and uh, for me at least uh that is not i mean you know that's about probably the hundredth draft of that <laughs> that particular page uh my first pages uh change more than any other pages in my book uh because uh you start out thinking your reader needs to know so much about your character and they don't they need to know enough about their your character to emotionally engage with them and follow them um, they need to know enough about the setting to be grounded in where they are they need to know about the historical time to be grounded in where they are but they don't need all the details and all the and too many details uh, weigh a narrative down so i always like even when i'm describing how a person looks i might give a, a couple of things but i try to pick one characteristic that is the defining characteristic of that person so that when you see that you know see their eyes or see the way their lips move or whatever you're reminded somehow of the whole the whole 
person there. And even things like, you know, I've, I've read and I think it's true that if uh, if you make a character, if an author makes a character redhead and the reader doesn't like redheads, they just will not register the redhead, <laughs> you know? So I don't think you need that many physical details to bring a character to life. I think you need to feel their emotion to bring a character to life. Right, because the physical characteristics don't necessarily carry um, emotion or even carry character. Right. Um, I mean, you can call someone a blonde and we're both blondes in a way, um, but that doesn't mean that we're the same person. So right. um, you need to go beyond um, that kind of surface detail. But right. yeah, I do love you give the context first, those first two sentences before we're introduced to Nene, give us, ground us in this world. The sky out of the glass roof of her Vega gall was as crimson as the airplane. We do get the pronoun her, but we don't know who, who her is yet. And we're kind of just um, eager to find out. We don't mind that that pronoun is not identified yet. Um, beyond the windshield in the gray world, propeller 10,000 tons of iron stood laced against the setting sun. So that is so necessary um, to give us that, again, that wider view of her. And then and then we center in to get her. Right. Um, and, it's and, and just to be clear, I mean, the fact that she uh, that she flies an airplane when very few people did much, much less very few right. women uh, defines her way more than whatever color her hair is, which is, we all know, is a little changeable. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. And um, and the fact that she flies her airplane with her dog in the seat next to her, uh, it makes her uh, a person that is different than any other person, any other character. So that those without even having any idea what we what she looks like we have a, a sense of who she is. And right. so that's why physical characteristics are not just not that important. Yeah. And so you also begin with these kind of longer sweeping sentences. And then on the third page, as she begins to get into trouble, you move into much shorter sentences and fragments. Um, and, and there's a lot of white space actually not not white space breaks but there's a lot of air in that on that page as you're moving into what, what about everybody your decision? See, are we recording yeah. are we uh doing visuals so you can they see, can the see yeah. yeah um yeah. was did you write it that way originally with one line per sentence uh, yeah, well, so I write however it comes out, and I don't worry too yeah. much about the form, but um, but that is a very conscious, you know, at some point in time, uh, whether I did that at, at the beginning or not, that's very, when you go through an action scene, uh, the, it's interesting, the way of, uh, of having short sentences, short, uh, short lines, a lot of white space, your eye moving really uh, quickly down the page gives the reader, interestingly, uh, a sense of, speed and and pace and so if you have that whole that whole page but in just one block uh paragraph it would not have the same effect it's uh, it, it would just not have the same effect and then one more thing toward the end of this first scene she's able to get control and uh she tells herself she she ought not have been flying so low but that was what she loved the high open sky yes but also the rush of earth and then we get this italics line that daughter of yours would rather be wild than broken don't you worry she'll end up alone and then she says but i'm not alone am i dags i have you um i love that you i love that that voice breaks in and that you don't identify where that's coming from because um, I think that grants a certain bit of mystery, and it obviously seems like a line that haunts her, that it's something that someone has said to her or about her that is always running through her head and that she's always defending herself against. 
Yes. Uh, was was that always in the beginning or did you I think to... that line was always I think that line you know who knows it's uh yeah it's hard it, to remember you, you know, so, <laughs> who knows but I think that line was always in there because it is as you say you, know, you have to think about what drives your character not just yeah. what motivates them but what drives them and what drives Nane in many ways is um this idea of needing to to be somebody, to do something, not just a rich girl. I mean, she could just go back to Chicago and be a debutante and marry some, you know, she's beautiful and on top of being rich, she could just go back and marry some fine young man. But that's not what she wants. That is not the life she wants. She wants to be somebody in her of her own. Uh, and um, yeah, and so, um, you know, one of the things I try to do and I, I feel particularly proud of it in this book. So I will say is that it's interesting because, you know, she flies in an airplane in this um, in this scene uh, and you actually don't really see that airplane for the rest of the book. So spoiler mm. alert, she does not fly in to rescue any, anybody. Um, she actually uh, in real life uh, sold the or gave the airplane to the French army when when the um, Germans invaded. Um, but but I think, um, you know, there's all this stuff about foreshadowing and metaphor and all that thing that, you know, what I kind of glazed over me when I was in English class, which I wasn't much. Um, I was not an English major. But um, uh, but the opening scene of this book uh, it, uh, describes the arc of the entire story. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so in a way, uh, I hope a very subtle way that the reader won't realize, uh, maybe until they go back and read it a second time, it uh, gives you a sense of where um, the book is going. And the reader carries that with them as they're reading forward, even though they don't really know it. They've read that scene. They don't really know why that scene is the shape it is. But when you get to, but it inform it's, you know, it's interesting the way you write things. There's there's a um, there's a bracelet in this story. Uh, it's a fur bracelet. It's it's a real bracelet. It's a Scaparelli bracelet uh, designed by a surrealist artist uh, named uh, Oppenheim. Um, and uh, that bracelet appears in one scene, and then it appears in another scene. It appears in another scene, and each time it appears, it picks up the meaning, some some emotional meaning from the scene, and carries it forward. So when you see that later on in the book, on a very subconscious way, mm -hmm. uh, you are it is bringing with it uh, what's already happened to that uh, that bracelet in in the arc of the story. And I love doing things like that. I think it's so much. It's so much better a way to describe the feelings that people have than to say, you know, he felt angry or uh, he remembered when this happened or whatever. You should you know, yeah. just put that bracelet there and the reader remembers what happened. You don't have to tell them about it. So yeah. um, I love things like that. Yeah. And that's that's called a spandrel when you're using an object like that, that that connects emotionally so that you just bring need to bring the object into the text and we, the reader, relate everything that we've already known about the object and the certain emotion about the object. Um, and, it, and it can be very, very useful. All right, Meg, I'm gonna have to let you go. I think we could keep talking for a lot longer, <laughs> but I think people are going to need to get to their own writing desk. I hope that this is inspiring for them. I think it will be. So everyone, you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as um, on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other listeners. Okay, Meg, one last question. Yep. What advice would you give to writers about their own first pages? 
Uh, well, I'm going to say it's, uh, it's advice uh, that was uh, given to me uh, by the amazing Tim O'Brien, a uh, National Book, Book Award winner, um, years ago when I was uh, first learning to write. I uh, uh, went to the Swanee Writers Conference and he was one of my mentors. And uh, he says, um, use extraordinary actions, and this is paraphrasing, uh, in your uh, characters to illuminate ordinary emotions. And that's the best kind of literature. So I love that. And I try to do that from the from page one to the very end. Have you found what you lost? Yeah, that works you lost okay, everyone, use extraordinary actions for the ordinary. Um, see how you can use that to drive yourself forward in your first pages. Thank you again so much, Meg. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Michelle. I really appreciate uh, being here. Good luck with your writing, everybody.